So humans tend to commemorate special things with food. Birthdays can't go without a cake, right? Graduations have to be followed by a nice meal of some sort. Weddings also need a huge cake, right? Anniversaries usually revolve around some sort of romantic dinner. Clearly, we use food to bind us in celebration of important things. And God works similarly. God, although he doesn't eat and doesn't need to eat, instituted meals throughout the scripture to celebrate major events in his relationship with his people. And and during these meals, as we will see, or if you were paying attention during the reading, God is personally present to dine, to commune with his people. So, for example, Isaiah 25, 6 to 8. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. Or Revelation 19, verse 9, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. God clearly uses meals in the life of his people. And in Exodus 24, our text today, God hosted a meal to complete his covenanting with the nation of Israel. So beginning in Exodus 19, Israel had gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai and God addressed them and they, in principle generally speaking, accepted the covenant. And over the following chapters, God explained the terms of that covenant relationship in more detail. And in chapter 24, those people, the, the people accept those terms, and there's a ceremony to mark the completion of this covenant. Today, we're going to explore what that covenant meal means for us as we consider the doctrine of repentance. As these people gather together to commune with God, they, they all came equally in need of forgiveness. They fully needed grace as they came before God. And that means none of them had pride of place as they assembled. And so the main point for us today, the main point, is that the Lord's Supper as a pledge of God's grace reminds us to be gracious with one another. The Lord's Supper as a pledge of God's grace reminds us to be gracious with one another. And we're going to consider this in three points. Premises, prodding, and promises. So, first, premises. I, okay, usually what I, I try to do 
for theological issues in a text is is take a, a slow approach, explain it as we work up to it. But today there are actually several points that are necessary in Exodus 24. So I'm going to directly highlight four doctrinal premises from this text and draw lines right away from those to their New Testament fulfillment. So, so this point is about four doctrinal aspects from this text. Okay. First one, God celebrates covenants with meals. God celebrates covenants with meals. I, I've mentioned chapter culminates the story about God covenanting with Israel that began in chapter 19. So Exodus 24 is that story's high point marking the completion of God's formal relationship to make Israel a nation of his people. So so this culminating event itself culminates in a meal. Verses, turn to and read verses 9 to 11 with me. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Ihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up And they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. No, look, note. They beheld God and ate and drank. So in in this meal, uh, the particular event of Exodus 24, the the elders go as the representatives of the people to the table where God hosts a meal, which means that one way our new covenant meal that we celebrate today is better is that every professing believer dines with God. More importantly, though, we see that God is genuinely actually present at this covenant meal that which sealed the deal so to speak on the mosaic covenant so when god's people eat a divinely appointed covenant meal then god is genuinely present not not in the general always present everywhere sense but specially present in blessing So also, Christ instituted the Lord's Supper to confirm our nourishment in the covenant. Just like this Exodus 24 meal, God is genuinely present at our table. Okay, second, so God celebrates covenants with meals. Second, sacrifices secure that communion between God and people at these meals. Sacrifices secure that communion. Let's read together verses 4 to 8. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings 
and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Okay, so the order of events here is actually really important. So let me just outline that quickly. So first, verse 5, we see that sacrifices were completed. Then, verse 6, Moses put blood on the altar, the, the symbol of God's presence, which indicated, his throwing the blood on the altar indicated that God accepted this sacrifice. Then, verse 7, Moses read the book of the covenant, which means that God's word is essential. Essential if acceptable sacrifice is going to be applied to the people. And then finally, verse 8, Moses sprinkled blood on the people, indicating that the sacrifices which God accepted were applied to them. Now, here's the significance of that. Okay, this is why that's important. This shows us the pattern of how we receive forgiveness in Christ. Okay, Christ, the final high priest, sacrificed himself to procure forgiveness. And then he rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven, which indicated that the sac- God had accepted that sacrifice. The apostles commanded the, the reading and preaching of God's word. And through that proclamation, God applies the sacrifice, the effective to forgive sins sacrifice to people by drawing them to faith in Christ through his covenant book. And we seal the benefits of faith in the biblical manner, by sprinkling water on covenant members, because throughout the Scripture, forgiveness and cleansing is symbolically applied to people through the act of sprinkling. So, it's because of this process of sacrifice accomplished, accepted, and applied to people that they're allowed, that they can eat this meal with God. Okay, so that's why the Lord's Supper is for only believers. Entrance to the meal marks our profession of faith as we come for nourishment in light of having been forgiven, having grasped Christ and His work by faith. So sacrifices secure this communion we have in meals with God. Third, The new covenant is different and better than the old. So, 
Moses, uh, verse 3, read verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They later again said that they will do these things and we will be obedient. So God, what happens here is God spoke the entire law to them as the terms of this covenant. And the people agree to fulfill it. Now, we could, we could think that this points us towards some sort of works righteousness. We, we shouldn't think that though. And here's why. So, so Augustine, the, the most significant theologian of the early church, wrote against the idea that sinners can earn heaven by works. And, and he responded to people who would use passages like this, uh, saying that in the old covenant given on Mount Sinai, so this one of which we've read, listen, only earthly happiness is expressly promised. The land of promise with peace and royal power are the promises of the Old Testament. And these indeed are symbols of the spiritual blessings which pertain to the New Testament. So, in other words, this covenant where, where God's people had to keep the law related to earthly, temporary blessings. That's it. And it's not that they weren't saved, but it's this particular covenant related to that. And as Galatians 3.24 tells us, this law covenant pertaining to earthly blessings was a guardian to show us that we can't earn blessings by our works with the result, the purpose that we would be justified by faith. So God linked earthly blessings to works and obedience for Israel, specifically so that they would know when they failed to do it, that they could get heavenly blessings only by faith. So salvation has always been by faith in the Messiah. But but this function of the law under Moses showed our desperate need for the Savior. So the new covenant is better than the old covenant because the old pointed to symbolic earthly blessings and said, you must do. And the new covenant points to heaven itself and says, Christ has done. So the new covenant is different and better than the old. Four, last one. The mediator approaches God for the people. So in verses 15 to 18, and at the beginning of of the chapter, Moses alone could enter God's direct presence because Moses was the mediator, the stand-in between God and the people for that covenant. He approached God as the representative of the rest. So this means that only the mediator, the representative, 
can fully approach God directly. Now, the new covenant is better again. There's a theme here. The new covenant is better again because now our mediator isn't Moses, but is the perfect Jesus Christ. He has secured the sacrifice to forgive sins, but he has also passed into the heavens to plead your case before God's throne if you have faith in him. Unlike Moses, who pointed to repeated fading sacrifices, Jesus points to a perfect sacrifice to secure your salvation in the divine courtroom. So, the the premises, we've seen four, the premises all point us to see that we can have the communion meal only because of Christ's saving work. That's how they all tie together. We can have a communion meal with God because of Christ's saving work. That brings us to our second point, prodding. Okay, we... Okay, the last point we considered the doctrinal premises that show how Christ is the foundation of our fellowship meal with God. And now we need to get a lot more practical and look at how that connects to our topic of repentance. So the point is that we come to our covenant meal as people in need of forgiveness which should remind us that we are all struggling sinners who should be gracious with one another. Okay, it's easy in churches to get bothered with with other people, right, who approach things differently than we do or, or emphasize different things. And some Sometimes... <clears throat> I mean, there are particular reasons this can happen. And so sometimes we get latched into our own particular concerns. Sometimes we see that things genuinely need to be better and we want it done right away. Sometimes we just have personality clashes. Sometimes we see that others are stuck in sin. And sometimes we are stuck in sin and are looking... For others to blame. And we see in Exodus 24, though, that everyone who gathered to mark this covenant with God, which was followed by a meal, had to be sprinkled with blood. They all needed forgiveness, and they all came there acknowledging that they were sinners. They were repentant together. As a people coming in unison to forgive, to receive forgiveness and to commune with God. And so too, for us, when we gather for our covenant meal, we need to realize that we have to come to the table in repentance. Now, different strands of the Reformed tradition of which we're a part have rightly rightly emphasized the need to examine ourselves before we come to the table. But sometimes in various Reformed communities around the world, 
that right emphasis has, and there are multiple, that right emphasis has morphed into an emotional introspection where Christians feel that they have to send themselves into the depths of despair over every sin before they can come to the table. And if they don't, then they have to abstain themselves from it. And if we are basing whether we can come to the table on our own estimation of whether or not we have felt bad enough, then we've actually bought a sort of form of works righteousness, whereby we seem to think we can earn a seat at the Lord's Supper by feeling intensely bad enough. But there is a reason that our catechism calls word, sacrament, and prayer the ordinary means Christ uses to communicate the benefits of redemption, of which repentance is one. Repentance should, therefore, like those means, be ordinary, regular. We should not have to dive deep into the mire of our despicability on communion weeks but should be in regular repentance before God, humble before others, and as Westminster Confession 15.5 instructs us, should keep short accounts with God on a regular basis, even of our particular sins. So we should be in regular, ordinary confession before God and repentance of our sinfulness. And so when we see then, because of that, that the church is not a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners, we should come to this meal realizing that all faithful Christians, all faithful Christians are doing the best they can. And, and even if someone bothers you, the reason that they could be so wound up and might be unable to admit the fact that they are that way is they may fear how others will receive them in light of their imperfection and sin. So, instead of pouncing on each other's imperfections, annoyances, and and letting our bitterness simmer... We should instead remember Galatians 6, 1 and 2, which says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Note carefully there, this is really important, that the context of a bear one another's burdens, which is something we say often, is if anyone is caught in any transgression. Which means 
that if you think someone else is not only just bothersome, but even stuck in sin, we're supposed to help them. I don't, I don't personally know of any huge rifts in this congregation for which we're incredibly thankful. But I do know that humans generally easily get bothered with one another. And we need to learn that people who are genuinely repentant of their own sins are slow to be angry with their fellow Christians who are struggling. That's not to say we don't speak. That's not to say we don't correct. Quite the opposite. But we're slow to be angry. We're quick to help. So the prodding in the Lord's Supper is to remember that we all gather as people who need grace and forgiveness. So, so we should look not only to God for mercy, but we should look also to our table mates to extend mercy. And that brings us to our third point, promises. Okay, we, we've seen how the doctrinal premises point us to Christ as the, the foundation of our fellowship with God. And we saw that we should convict our own consciences of the times that we easily don't extend grace to others at the moment when we, we so desperately need it ourselves. And this, this point ties together again, essentially, what's already been said, that, that this is a meal that we're about to take wherein God comes to nourish and commune with forgiven sinners. So we saw in Exodus 24 that the people needed to be covered in blood to remove their sins. And we saw how, in light of that, God was specially present in communion with them. And the point now is that God still extends those promises of forgiveness and communion. The old covenant demanded repeated sacrifices of bulls, goats, and lambs. And we often connect the Lord's Supper with the Passover meal that centered around a sacrificed lamb made into a meal. And and one of the things that I really want you to remember as you come to this table is not only what is here, but also what is not here. Have you ever thought about the fact that this new covenant Passover There's no lamb here. The reason why we don't have a a dish of lamb on our table as well is that unlike the old covenant's need for repeated sacrifices, we have a perfect lamb who died once and for all to deal definitively and forever with sin, who stands eternally in heaven to apply his effective sacrifice. So our table has bread and wine, just 
bread and wine because our Lamb is one and has definitively dealt with our sins. And that is why Jesus, as he instituted this cup, said that this is the new covenant in my blood. So, then, at this table, give thanks that no lamb is served. The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, entered creation to die for your sins, pouring out His blood on the cross to put an end to your transgressions. Jesus Christ offers you forgiveness if you would take hold of Him by faith. For those who trust in Jesus, God has accepted Christ's death instead of yours to satisfy His justice, and now God would accept you as righteous in His sight. For those whom God has forgiven in Christ, Christ also promises communion. Christ is genuinely present, not in a physical manner as if these elements turn into Him, but in a spiritual manner. We read in 1 Corinthians 10.16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? We truly receive Christ for our spiritual nourishment if we come to this table trusting Him for new life. We must then, in light of all that, remember that this is a meal for sinners, those who need forgiveness. We should rejoice looking upward as God seals the promises of forgiveness to us. And we should also come humbly looking to the side, knowing that all who receive this meal come needing help to live faithfully to Christ. We come here as a family, sometimes strong, probably more often struggling. So, Let's repent together, helping each other to this meal, knowing that even if we limp, we limp together towards our beautiful Savior who has done everything to feed us with eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, it is a wonderful thing to be your people, and at times it is a challenging thing to be your people. It is hardly ever enjoyable to consider our need to be repentant, but we hope that it is good for us, and we hope that as we learn more about being open, transparent uh, in confessing our sins to you 
and acknowledging them before others and coming humbly together, bearing one another's burdens to this table, that you would so work in us that it wouldn't be such a challenge as it can be in many churches to be a congregation of believers. We're glad for the peace of this congregation that we normally experience, and we pray that you would preserve that. And we pray that one of the ways you would preserve that is by making us a deeply repentant people. Personally, as we've considered from Second Corinthians previously, and together, as we've considered from this passage about this covenant meal. So as we approach this table, help us to delight in the fact that Christ gives himself and his benefits to us in these ordinary, simple elements. Rejoicing that we receive blessings from God, looking upwards to you in worship. But help us also to look to the side, knowing that we don't come here just by ourselves, but that we come here as the church, a group of people who need grace and forgiveness, and that you have given us this family as one of the ways to help us as we endeavor after new obedience. So we do pray that you would work that in us and that you would use even this time ahead around this table to do that. And we pray these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.